Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to 1 Peter chapter 2. In a Bible study that I've entitled, You Are a Chosen Generation. You know, we look at the culture today and we're like, man, I can't believe I'm alive right now. I can't believe I'm facing what I'm facing, seeing what I'm seeing. But the Bible would say you're alive for such a time as this. This is your time. You're alive now. Everything that was arranged with your family, your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, all of that was arranged to bring you to the place where you are right now. Even as the first century believers... They were alive in the time that God ordained for them. They faced their trials and tribulations in their culture, in their time period. We face ours. And we left off last time with that exhortation to lay aside some of the things that are hindering us and to desire to take in the pure milk of the word. Remember verse 1 of chapter 2? Therefore, laying aside all malice, guile, hypocrisy, envy, And all evil speaking as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If indeed that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Or we've learned it if you've tasted that the Lord is good. And he is indeed good and gracious. And so laying aside things that will hinder us and desiring things that will help us, they go hand in hand in every area of life. To to lay aside those things that will harm us and to desire those things that will help us, that's a biblical truth throughout the scriptures. It reminds me of our study in Hebrews. When we were studying Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, remember we were instructed, therefore we also, since we're surrounded by such a great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that easily ensnares us so that we can run our race with endurance that's set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I mean, if you're here today, you're listening to me, and you're looking for some direction in life. You're looking for some very precise direction. What is the next thing I should do? How should I respond to this crisis? What should I do next? I want to encourage you, go back into the app, or go back onto the website and listen to the studies that we did in learning how to run your race. We spent some time really zeroing in on what will help you run your race more effectively. And we learned that running our race is a metaphor that describes how to live for Christ. And we want to do so not walking, not, you know, not crawling, not walking, but we're running. And we're running in a race not to beat each other, like to be the finisher so that I can come in first place and get the gold medal, but rather we're running our race to take as many people as possible, and the whole goal is to finish. We want to finish the race. So we're reminded that we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses there in Hebrews. I think it's worth a review as we look back and think that as we're running the race of life, we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. Now, don't think of it as a stadium that's filled with people up in heaven watching us, but rather this is a reference to examples. We have examples before us, a cloud of witnesses, witnessing to the fact that they finished their race too. And so we ask, well, what, who are they? Well, who are these witnesses? Who, in context, is this cloud of witnesses? And you'll recall that this is in reference, in context, to all of those in the hall of faith. As we went one after another, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, all of them in their particular life, in their time, by faith, they finish the race. And they become a cloud of witnesses and examples to us that we can finish our race too. They're our motivation. This is what moves us. We're to run the race of faith just like they did. That's why it's really advantageous for us to look around in our, in our fellowship, in our community, maybe in our family. And you know, you have witnesses in your own family as well, your own friendships. 
where you see people overcome great, uh, great difficulty and they, they, come, they come against all odds and they're still running, they're still going forward. As one commentator said, and I quote, these witnesses, they knew how to run the race of faith. They opposed Pharaoh. They forsook the pleasures and prerogatives of his court. They passed through the Red Sea, shouted down the walls of Jericho, conquered kingdoms, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, received back their dead by resurrection. They were tortured, mocked, scourged, imprisoned, stoned, sawn in two, had to dress in animal skins, and were made destitute, all for the sake of their faith. And so their witnesses, not onlookers, and they've proved it by their testimony and their witness and their lie, life of faith. So going back, you can turn to Hebrews if you like, but if you're taking notes, by way of review, remember the instruction of what we were asked to lay aside. These are the things that will help you run your race better, and we'll just briefly review them. Number one, we're instructed, lay aside every weight. Identify the weights, those things that are weighing you down, and lay it aside. And you get the idea that this is not a one-time thing. You don't just lay it aside and go, it's never going to come back. No, you know, you're just like any racer, anybody that's, that's preparing for a race, they're, they're, they're making every effort to be in their best condition. And there are times we have to lay aside those things that don't help you run well. Now, we could easily think of some things that don't help you uh, taking in, you know, social media, screen time, you know, you, things, that, things that are obvious, but maybe there are things that are not so obvious that are in your life, that are unique to you, that you just got to take before the Lord. It's very consistent with our time in prayer today as we take some time together corporately as a church and we pray that Pastor Ian says, look, I want you to pray for yourself. Consider yourself today. Lay aside every weight. Number two, lay aside the sin that so easily ensnares you. There are weights in life that are bothersome, that are heavy, that are annoying and bulky. But sin, you know, there are things that weigh us down, but known sin will stop us in our tracks. And it's a very deceptive thing because we can go through all the outward emotions and not be in the race. You become very religious where you have the appearance of holiness, but you deny the power thereof. You have an appearance of re being religious and, and spiritual, and you have the, the appearance of being a good Christian, whatever that means these days, and being a good churchgoer. But if you're not laying aside the sin, you're not in the race. Your race has come to a stop. All sin is a hindrance to Christian living. But there is that, in Hebrews, there's that word the, lay aside the sin. So there's an implication that you're looking for a particular specific sin in your life. Thirdly, to run your race well in Hebrews chapter 12, we remember we're to lay aside the weight, lay aside the sin. And then thirdly, we're to look unto Jesus. Look unto Jesus. This is so good because where our eyes are, that's where our focus is. Our attention and our affections Looking unto Jesus, we should be doing that every day. The looking unto him in his word, looking into him as we learned just this week, uh, you know, that our last time in Peter. Looking unto Jesus, knowing that we're in the word because tough times require us to be tethered to the word of God and the wisdom of God and the worship of God. That we're in his word, like, like that we're not reading it religiously, we're not reading it because that's what we have to do. We're taking it in because it speaks of the character and nature and the goodness of God. And you can't read too many pages before you see that God has been faithful to everyone that came to him. He's been faithful to every single person that turned to him. He's been faithful to every person that's prayed to him. He's been faithful to everyone that's raised their hands and worshiped to him. And that just encourages, because you might even be in a sense where you wake up and go, you know, I don't know, God, you're not faithful to me. You've forgotten me. Nobody's talked to me. Nobody's reached out to me. Christian communities fail me. I got this big situation in my house. I got this big situation with my kids. I got this big situation with my family and my marriage, my singleness. I got all these things. You've forgotten me. And then you open up and you go, oh, no, there's a prodigal kid. He came home. Oh, oh no, there was a person that felt alone, but God came to him in a vision. Think of that. He's all alone, all by himself, and God shows up to him personally in a vision. 
to speak encouragement. I mean, there's over and over and over again that God meets us in our greatest difficulty. We got to look unto Jesus. There's a sense of, he uses that, again, it is metaphoric language. We, we don't see Jesus physically. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. We look to Jesus because wherever our eyes are, that's where we're going to go. We follow our eyes. Thirdly, or excuse me, fourthly, in Hebrews 12, we were reminded that as we're looking unto Jesus, we're to see him as the author and finisher of our faith. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Because he's the supreme example of our faith. Author is, the word comes to us as, it means the originator, the pioneer, the one that begins and takes the lead. And so Jesus, we looked at him and be reminded that he originated all the faith that we've read about and lived and experienced. He's the chief leader, the real example for us, but he's also the finisher. And this word in the original language, remember the New Testament was written in the common Greek of the day. It's called the Koine Greek. It was, God was so gracious that he had the Bible written in the every man's language. That's why I'm always encouraged by accurate translations that can take the Bible and make it relevant to our language today. Uh, the New King James does a good job of that, but I love to read the NLT for my devos because it takes it just down another notch to common phraseology so that we can just receive the word and take it in. But see, he's the finisher. He's the one that this word has the meaning of, he's the one that carries your faith to completion. Now, this is important because how many times have you just felt like giving up and quitting? You say, it's not worth it anymore. I'm tired. I don't like this. It's too hard. It, you think of all the things that come your way, just don't run. You know, you might even have, you might even, you know, have voices in your head. And I don't mean uh, any kind of medical condition or mental condition. You just got, like, you, you just hear voices, just quit. It's just some demonic attack on you. Just quit. Nobody's going to care. They won't remember you. They'll move on. Just quit. Just turn your back. Just give up. And, you know, it corresponds with your feelings. And you're like, well, maybe I will. And then you start talking to yourself. Now, that's a problem. In times of crisis, you're the worst person to talk to. Most of the time. Unless you're encouraging yourself in the Lord. <laughs> if you're talking to yourself, it's usually, it's usually not going to go very well. And I would just encourage you, if you're in that place right now, just ask for some help. Text somebody. Ask somebody to pray for you. You know, one of the things that somebody praying for you does, it interrupts that conversation. It just stops it. And then maybe if the person's praying for you and, and they're just sensitive to the Holy Spirit, as they're praying, man, they're saying stuff that you've been thinking all day. But the Lord has it for you that he just interrupts that and says, no, I don't want, you remember the author and finisher. Remember his faithfulness. And then the scriptures start flowing through your mind. You go, oh yeah, I remember now in Philippians that he who began a good work, confident of this very thing, he who began a good work in you will complete it. And say, yes, Lord. And when, when he writes in, when the Bible says in the Psalms that God will perfect that which concerns me, he says, yes, Lord. And they go, oh man, remember Abraham, he was such a failure, but he made it, yes, Lord. Oh, man, look at, look at Peter. What a failure Peter was. And what are you doing on a midweek Bible study? What are you doing listening to Christian radio right now? You're studying about the man that failed and got back up again. Because God is the God of the, that gives second, second chances. And if you need second, 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 second chances, it could be the very last one you'll ever need when you come back and you get up and say, yeah, you, Lord, I repent of my failure. I repent. I'm going to look to you because you're the beginner. This all started with you. You pursued me. And you, remember, you start to remember. This is the value of memorizing scripture. Because as you're praying, if you happen to, to talk to you, the Holy Spirit can interrupt you and start reminding you of scriptures that you've hidden in your heart so that you won't sin against him. And so I encourage you, one of the things you should memorize, maybe make it a goal by next Wednesday, is just memorize Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So you're reminded of these very things. Number five, one of the things we were encouraged back in Hebrews was to look to the joy that was set before Jesus. He gave the example. He, he, Jesus had that joy that was set before him. So when you're looking at Jesus, remember that part of Jesus running his race, God in human flesh, was he looked to the joy 
that was set before him. And I want to suggest this to you. I suggest that the joy that was set before Jesus was you and me. The joy of finished redemption and salvation and the rescuing power that the death, his death and resurrection was going to bring to us. Because we know he addressed us in the Gospels. He would talk about those that would believe later. Us. And the joy that was before him was your transformed life. Was your children and grandchildren. And the carrying on of the gospel. The joy of the Father, the Bible says, is your salvation and mine. In John chapter 17, listen, in verse 24, it says, Father, this is Jesus praying. I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. That they may behold my glory which you've given to me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. There's joy in being reunited. And there's joy in front of us. God still wants to work in your family. He still wants to give you victory over besetting sin. He still wants to break you free from your past. He wants to help you overcome your regret. Like God's still at work in you. So there's a joy before you. Which also gives you such great excitement that as you're sowing seed of the gospel in people's lives, you may be able to see that seed come to fruition. That, that little invite to church, that little card you give out, that constant prayer for your family. Like we, we have expectancy in joy because that's where hope comes. Then not only that, number six we learn, as you're looking to Jesus, you look to him as he endured. Now that's important. Because many times you'll look at the endurance perhaps in Jesus and think, well, of course, he was God. And you'll forget that he was God in human flesh. He was the perfect human. And he endured as a human. And his endurance led him to despise the shame. And here we are. We're running our race. We might be ready to give up, throw in the towel, and we got to get our eyes back on Jesus. When they are, things become clearer. He loves me. He died for me. And I'm going to endure whatever it is, this season of difficulty. Because Jesus endured. And his death and resurrection came with mocking, scourging, you know, lie. They hired people to lie about him. He, he was beaten to, he was unrecognizable. Most people died under that beating. He endured it. He endured it. It was shameful. People made, this is the God in human flesh. But he did it all the way to the end. And then finally, we looked at in Hebrews 12, again, coming alongside, laying aside. Then when you lay aside, then you desire. In Hebrews, we look to Jesus who sat down. That's number seven. He finished. That's the final stage. He's in that place of authority. And I believe it, it, this informs, just by way of review, I think this informs where Peter is in his heart. Lay aside these things. And remember, malice, evil speaking, guile, hypocrisy. We looked at those in depth last time, but they, they just aren't consistent. They're great temptations when you're under big trials, but they're, they need to be laid. They're not going to help you in the race. And instead, have that desire for the word, that's where growth is going to come. Even if you don't see it, growth will come. Why? Because you've already tasted, verse 3, that the Lord is good. Verse 4, we come to him, remember, as a living stone. We're rejected by men, but we're chosen by God and we're precious. And we're also, as a church family, as believers all around the world, living stones, being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. We're not just a stack of bricks all squared up. God has taken us as bricks and he's put us in the body of Christ, built us up, and we all have our place so that together we're interconnected. We, are, we need each other. And in many ways, we want each other because we're going to keep each other strong. Jesus, no, he's the master builder. Notice, we're a holy priesthood, it says, offering up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 6. Therefore, it's also contained in the scriptures, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. He who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he's precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word 
to which they were also appointed. So Jesus is that stone that was rejected. He came to his own and his own received him not. Remember back in Acts, Peter would use the same verse when he was preaching. The religious rulers could not deny the miracle because the man that was healed was standing right there. And Peter said, and turn over to Acts chapter 4 with me, just to stick with me. Go to Acts chapter 4, slip over on your phone if you're there. Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Acts chapter 4 in verse 8. The religious rulers couldn't deny the miraculous. And Peter, it says in verse 8, it says, filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, this is Acts 4, 8 and 9. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to this helpless man, by which means he was made well, let it be known to, all, to, all, to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. And then here's where Peter's quoting the same thing that he's now teaching you later on in the letter. He says, this is the stone, speaking of Jesus, that was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And there's no salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Which reminds me, when God gives you a, an audience with someone important or someone in authority, what's going to marvel, what's going to cause them to marvel is when you speak the word to them and you speak the truth to them about Jesus. When you speak the truth or even live the truth out in your own life. And Jesus says, you know, of course, the re- contextually, they, are, they were already led up to, they know what Jesus, Peter's saying exactly. They're familiar with this passage in the Old Testament. And so they are recognizing the reality of the miracle and how the stone can be rejected, how Jesus can be rejected. Now, I want to pause just for a moment here before we jump into the rest of the text today because it's important for you to understand this. Jesus can be rejected. We see that in the text here. Jesus can come to a person and be rejected. Or you may want to use a more familiar word. Jesus can be resisted. Where you can sense all of the truth from God's word. You could even sense and feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And refuse to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Believers, you also, that's for an unbeliever, for someone that doesn't have a relationship with God, they can reject Christ all the way till they die in their sins. That's possible. We learn that here in many other places. But also as a believer, you can hear the word of God, hear the word of God, be convicted over and over again, even come to a place where you're kind of like, you know, I don't like Bible study anymore because I don't really get anything out of it. I don't, and, and I always want to ask you, well, wait a minute. Uh, you don't get anything out of it. You're in a room with all these other people. They're getting stuff out of it. You don't get anything out of it. Could it be that there is a, there an area in your life that you are resisting God in and you're quenching the Holy Spirit and you are resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? And because you're doing that, you only hear the same thing over and over again to a call to repentance in that one area of your life because you haven't laid it aside. And could it be that you've so resisted that all you're hearing now is repetition, repetition on that one thing. And if you will lay aside that one thing, your ears and eyes will open up again. Jesus can be rejected by believer and unbeliever alike. You can reject Jesus or you can come to him as we learn as living stones and be received and enjoy a relationship with him. As Peter writes this in 1 Peter, the Jewish national rejection of Jesus in his church is a well-known fact. Back in 1 Peter, you can fast forward. It's well-known that the nation has rejected Messiah. And even so, Jesus triumphed over death. He built his church. He sustains his worshipers and he's still on the throne. The Jewish leaders had him crucified, but he rose again. 
The Sanhedrin had outlawed Christianity. Nero was persecuting and killing the believers in a horrific way. But the rejected stone still became the chief cornerstone. So I say this, a couple of things. Number one, you can reject Jesus Christ, but he will still accomplish his will on the earth. Your rejection doesn't stop Jesus Christ. Number two, there is a doctrine out there um, known as Calvinism, five-point Calvinism to be specific, that teaches, I believe, incorrectly in something known as irresistible grace. The Bible couldn't be clearer. You can resist the grace of God if you choose. God will not force you and make you against your will follow him. And just this one text should be enough. Where whole nations reject Jesus Christ. His own nation rejected him. He came to his own, the Bible says. And so don't think that you're going to be saved against your will. Like one day, I'll never be saved, I'll never be saved. And then you wake up one morning and go, oh, I guess, I guess I'm saved. I didn't know when, I don't know how it happened, but I guess I am now. Grace can be resisted. I warn you against that. I warn you against hearing the word of God and disobeying it. I warn you against hearing that your sins can be forgiven, that your life can be made whole. And your response is, I don't believe in God. Because the Bible says a fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's a foolish thing to say. I know it's a popular thing to say in our culture today, but it's foolish to say there is no God. It is foolish. You know, Darwinian humanistic, theo- um, humanistic evolution didn't exist till the 1800s. Darwin wasn't alive until the 1800s. That's when he introduced it and it became very popular over the years. A whole system of theory that replaces God with a humanistic way of explaining things that doesn't even make sense in and of itself. A careful study of Darwinian uh, evolution would show you that, man, it takes more faith to believe in that than it does in the truth of God's word. I mean, it is full of fiction and theory, and it's simply untrue. But it's easier. At least it's perceived as easier. Because if you don't have God in your philosophy of life, then you're only accountable to yourself. And you know as well as I do, you cut yourself a lot of slack. You let yourself get away with a lot. You and I are so self-protective that we will fight against the work of God from the inside. We'll deny our own sin. We'll argue against it. It's at, we will cover ourselves in pride and arrogance just to stay away from where, I don't know how many would, would see this in their own life, but you'll fight and you'll fight and you'll fight and you'll fight. You'll make your life miserable for two weeks, four months, maybe years and years. You're just like, no, nobody convinced me. And you're just getting harder and harder and harder when the whole situation could have just been solved by saying, will you forgive me? And you could have enjoyed four months, four years. That's you, that's me. And God is inside of us, born again of the Spirit to help us. He's alive. We have something that's immovable in our lives. When everything else around us is falling apart, when the nations are going haywire, the governments, the economies, the freedoms, as the world unravels in these last days right before our eyes, Jesus has joined us to himself by faith. And we come to the chief cornerstone. They stumble, it says in verse 8, because they're disobedient to the word. Well, you can stumble too by being disobedient to the word of God. So notice now the contrast. This is the good news. Verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim, notice, the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people. Can you think of when you were, like, when I read that, I almost automatically go, amen. I remember when I was not a people. I remember when I wasn't a believer. I remember it's like so much in front of me constantly, but I'm not. Now, I wasn't a people, but now you're the people of God. Isn't that great? Just relish in that for a second. 
You are not a people. Like Ephesians says, you had aimless wandering. Some of you were just so rebellious, so angry, so bitter. But now you are a people. You're not just a people. You're not just a nation. Your identity is not just in a nation. Your identity is not just your last name. Your identity is not just in your marriage or your parenting. You are the people of God. God Almighty has a relationship with you. (laughs) Man, that's like we just take that so for granted, Lord. Thank you for adopting me into your family. Before it says in verse 10, we had not obtained mercy, but now we've obtained mercy. As Jesus came to the earth, died and rose again, he never intended for a priesthood to be established. He never intended that people would have to come through an earthly man or an earthly woman to have fellowship and relationship with God. Jesus came to give direct access to God by faith. We learned that before. We have one mediator, not two, not three, between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus died for that access. He didn't die to create a religious system that just maybe one day you might get to God if you go through all the right channels and say all the right things and sit in the box and confess your sins and, and, and go through all the religious motions. That's not, that's not why Jesus died. To bring you in. He, Jesus didn't die to bring you into religious bondage. He died to set you free. That you can come directly to God. We learn this in Hebrews as well. It's such a great study. He, you can come directly into the throne room of grace to find help in time of need. Immediately, at any time. Jesus is your only mediator. And if you read this correctly, we're, notice in verse 9, we're the chosen generation. We, we, every generation is chosen. But as you're reading it in real time, we're a chosen generation. But we're also a priest. We're a royal priesthood. Imagine that. We would have never thought of being a priest in that technical sense. But the Bible says you are. You're a royal priesthood. You're a priest and I'm a priest together. Men and women, boys and girls, born again. All of us form this holy priesthood that have access to God. We can go anytime into his presence. We don't have to fear him as the priests of old needed to on the day of atonement. We're not, we were once not a people, but now we are a people. And, and we believe... And this is a phrase you may hear, you may not hear, but here at Calvary, and I think most churches, you know, most churches that are consistent with the Bible believe this, but I can verbalize it for us. We believe in what's known as the priesthood of all believers, because that's what the Bible says. We're all priests. So we change that around so that it's described. We believe in the priesthood of all believers, which can be translated this way. You are part of the body of Christ and God wants to use you. Nobody's more special than anyone else. You are now in the ministry. Now. Not because I said so, but because you're born again. You're now in the ministry, wherever you are. Sometimes this priesthood kind of gets lost in the formal religion, but so does the word minister. When you think of minister, you think, well, Ed, that's you. You're a minister. You're a pastor. So you are very special. I'm not a minister. You're a minister. But the Bible teaches otherwise. We're all ministers of the gospel. Ministry just speaks of servant. You're all servants. So it doesn't matter where your paycheck comes from. Well, you know, Ed, you're an official professional pastor because you probably get a paycheck from the church. Well, I do get a paycheck from the church, but it doesn't make me professional. It's just where God has me. For many years, I got a paycheck from an ambulance company. I was a minister of the gospel there too. For many years, I got a paycheck from a mortuary company. That's who, that's who I worked for. They, I was a minister of the gospel there too. For a little bit of time, I got a paycheck from McDonald's. I wasn't a minister there <laughs> because I wasn't saved back then. <laughs> you know how long I, just on a side note, just, you know how long I lasted at McDonald's? Four weeks, miraculously. It doesn't matter where your paycheck comes from, whether the U.S. government signs it because you work up at Buckley. It doesn't matter if Costco signs your paycheck or Kohl's, Chick-fil-A, or perhaps your paycheck is in a different way because you stay home, you raise the kids, you are home, maybe taking care of the home. It doesn't, you're unemployed right now. 
doesn't matter what status of life. The Bible says you are in the full-time ministry. Why? Because you are a part of a royal priesthood. And one of the ways we're communicating that this year, and I think it's going to stay with us until the Lord returns, I think you're going to hear this constantly for the rest. I mean, who knows, but I have a feeling. And one of the ways we've been communicating it this year in 2021 is that I, want, I, want, I believe the Lord wants us to be the church. You're born again. You're already the church. So be the church. Not just here. Here is a time of equipping. Here is where I get to fulfill my mandate from God to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's why we spend so much time teaching the Bible. That's why we have incorporated prayer. That's why we follow the example of the book of Acts. To the Why? Because I want you to be equipped in the word so you can do the work of the ministry. So collectively, we all do the work of the ministry. Why? Because we are a royal priesthood, it says here. Or excuse me, yeah, a royal priesthood. And then secondly, or thirdly, a holy nation, a set-apart group of people. That's our nationality. Our nationality is spiritual. We are citizens of heaven and then citizens of earth. Our nationality is our identity in Christ. We're his, and then he gets to that, then you're his own special people. You're very special to him in a positive way. You're special. He called you out of darkness, it says, into his marvelous light. And then notice now, with all that in mind, as we wind down, check this out in verse 11. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners, if you like to write in your Bible, circle that word, you can write next to it wanderers or pilgrims, not aimless wandering, but like you're just passing through, sojourners, pilgrims. I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Wait a minute. Now we had lay aside, then we had desire, now he gets back and he says, consider your identity, know who you are, now stay away from. So laying aside implies that you're already involved in it, get rid of it. Desire means it's not in your life, so want it more. And now abstaining means stay away from. That's a big part of the Christian life, the following Jesus. You look unto Jesus and you stay away. Notice what he says, fleshly things, these lusts that war against your soul. One of the things as we've been watching this unfold in 2020 and, you know, forever on, but especially through 2020 and all the things that we, that Marie has been using this phrase around the house, reminding us of what Lot had to deal with when he lived in Sodom. Remember, the Bible describes that, it, that what was happening in Sodom vexed his soul. I mean, it just got right down to the core of who he was and plagued his inner man. I'm sure you felt like that. I mean, maybe you've gotten angry, maybe you've gotten frustrated, maybe you, you know, have had to voice your opinion or whatever, but I'm sure that some of you, if not all of you, have what you've been feeling is your soul has been vexed. It's been injured. You look around and you see it, not just because of a country going sideways, not just because of, of all the racial tensions and the things that people are doing to each other, but the result of it. How can you not just be so sad and troubled when people are taken advantage of, when people are maligned? Because it's all about people. They're the ones that pay the price. We just are considering what the devastating sin of abortion has done just in our own country. And how can your soul not be vexed with 65 million babies being murdered in the womb and not just your soul be that. Maybe you didn't even know that's what it was. You've just been so sick to your stomach at the evil in this world. And your soul's been vexed. And P Peter's like, as, as they're all going through this and they're all going through difficulties, he's like, stay away from the lust that go right after your soul. Why would we participate in things that are going to destroy our soul? Having now, and now the positive side in verse 12, having now your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, which believe me, brother and sisters, that's going to happen. If it hasn't already, when you're spoken of as an evildoer, when the church is just a, when the church is said to be a drain on society, when the church is looked upon in the society as, as the evil, the evil, 
<laughs> they look at the good that you desire to do in God's name because he's changed you and saved you. And you just want to give back to your community. You just want to help people get right. You want to help people get sober. You want to help people save marriage. Just because you just want to love and help and serve like your savior. And the response is you're evil. We don't want you here. You're spreading hatred. You're in all the different narratives that are, that, this is happening. You know, it's like, this is not when, it's now. But here's the position. The position in that time is that as you're journeying through, you know this is not your home, you're, you're being faithful, you're, you're taking care of the inner man, the inner woman, you're abstaining from fleshly lust, and your conduct is honorable. You know, measure your life. Your conduct needs to be honorable. Honorable to who? To the Lord. He's the measuring. You don't, you don't measure me. We're not going to ask you, you know, in the front, when we stop RSVPing here soon, and then you're at the to- door, and we go, oh, we don't RSVP anymore, but we just want to know, do you have an honorable life? And we got a checklist. Click, click, click. Oh, that's just, no, it's between you and the Lord. It's your life. Your conduct has to be honorable unto God. He's with you. The, the inward witness of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because there are going to be people, the Gentiles, unbelievers is a phrase here, the people persecuting you, the people coming after you, the people watching you, have your conduct honorable that when they speak against you as evildoers, what? They may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Your good works send a message to a world that hates you and comes against you. Not your bad works, your good works. Not your fleshly lusts, but your spiritual surrender. They're going to speak to this world. And here's the thing. We don't hear about it off very often. I don't expect to hear about it very much because notice the time frame. They're going to glorify God when? In the day of visitation. <laughs> They're going to glorify God. That could be a reference to his second coming. could be a reference to the rapture. It could be a reference, a reference specifically to that day appointed visitation of God to them individually. But we're not going to be, we're not, we don't want honorable works so that we can get applause and, oh, good, great, good, what you did. Any of that kind of attention has to be a glorifying of God in that day of visitation. That means you and I, we can get in the way. We can either cooperate with God and be used by him, or we can get in the way of his work in people's lives. How? By our conduct. Well, what kind of conduct? Dishonorable. Yeah, but look at all the things they're saying about us. Yeah. This is first century, folks. 2,000 years ago, Peter wrote this. The Holy Spirit inspired this. When they speak evil about you, and they call you evildoers, that's just one of the reasons why they justify persecuting. That by your good works, they observe and glorify God in the day of visitation. This works in a, in a country a national setting, a worldwide setting. It works in a home, in a marriage. It works as parents. It works as kids. This applies to every relationship. You know, Peter here, when he says in verse 11, I beg you, you know, usually begging, when begging is involved, it usually is for selfish things. You know, we're begging for something. Oh, I beg you. And it's for something that we really, really want that's being held back. Like our kids sometimes, you know, we say no to something and they keep begging, begging, begging. You know, they want it. But biblically, when a spiritual leader is begging, he's usually begging not for selfishness, but for selfless, other-centered actions. He's saying, guys, I know what you're going through. Your persecution's not lost on me. But I beg you, don't use the persecution as an excuse to live a sinful life. Don't use how you're being treated as an excuse for a sinful life. Don't return evil for evil. Peter begs us, stay away from sinful things. Stay away. It's going to make things worse, not better. Keep your lives honorable among the world. Let your good works be seen so God might be glorified. As we look around our community and see where we might take the gospel to someone in a real way, We offer ourselves to the Lord. We offer our praise to the Lord. We offer our help to others as the body of Christ. And here we are gathered as living stones. Here we are gathered as a holy priesthood. And we need to remember that we have a new identity in Christ 
that supersedes all other identities. Everything comes after your identity in Christ. Everything is seen through your new identity in Christ. We need to remember that and put it at the forefront of our lives. All the differences that separate man are solved in Christ. I think that if we were just to take time and have a testimony night here, but just emphasize all the places we came from, we would be a very divided room. You know, some of you were into this sin. Some of you were into that sin. Some of you were over there. Some of you like this. Some of you, I mean, just think of just a, something simple and just un, like unimportant. Can you imagine all the differences and division in this room just over music preferences? Especially you people that like country music. What's wrong with you? <laughs> just there's one right there. But all the musical preferences, it's not just style of music, it's, it's singers, it's time frame, it's whether you like the vinyl, or you like the new MP3s, or you like, like it's just, there, we could go on and on of all the differences, but those, that's not a really significant difference. But the color of our skin, that's pretty serious. It's taken away in Christ. We honor people, because we love you, we love each other. When, when I think of what language you speak, that's taken away in Christ. I respect you for whatever language you speak. Praise God, you know, two, three, five, ten. Maybe, maybe even today you're listening right now, and we've had this many times where you don't know English, and I don't know your language, so somebody in between us is literally translating this word for word in your ear. And so whatever language you learn, I wish I knew it, but I'm so glad that person's in your ear telling you that God loves you and has a plan for your life. Uh, it's, you don't, I, I'm sorry that I don't speak your language. I wish I did. But I don't judge you because you don't speak English. I mean, you think of it, political differences. Oh, how many political differences could we bring up today? But listen, you're a citizen of heaven. Politics are going to come and go. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I think of what brings all the differences, you know, ethnic, racial, political I mean, there is no room for racism. There is no room for prejudging people by the color of their skin, by the language, by where they live, what they have, what they don't have, what they look like, what they smell like, what sin they're into. Man, in Christ, he changed you, church. He did. He changed you. And the greatest joy you'll have in life is to cooperate with that change and receive people with the mind and the eyes of Christ. It's a beautiful thing when you start to value people the way Jesus valued people. You say, well, Ed, well, how did Jesus value people? He died for you. He died for you and me. There's no room for racism. There's no room for prejudice. There's no room for hatred, the real kind of hatred that destroys people. The Bible speaks of real hatred. Remember what the Bible says? The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. There's no room for that in our lives. It won't get us to where we want to go. There's no room for that now. There's no room for that ever. We need to look at each other through the lens of love, acceptance, grace, charity. Why? Because we are united by the blood of Jesus Christ and we are family. Whether you like it or not, you are a part of the family. And so is the person sitting next to you if they're born again. Yes, they even got into the family too. Why? Because Jesus gave himself for us. And you and I are called to show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And remember, all of this is in light of being under great stress, pressure, trial, tribulation, difficulty, even to death. Peter's saying, guys, the summary like over and over is, guys, I know it's hard. It's hard for you. It's hard for me. But we're people on a mission, the mission of Christ. And it's not going to stop getting hard. Peter says, it's going to get harder. They're going to call us, start calling you evildoers. I know, Peter. It's like, even when you get that, you want that sympathetic ear, right? Come on, Peter, don't you know they called you an evildoer? I'm an evildoer. Yeah, yeah. They're going to call you evildoers. Instead of sympathy, he's, going to go, he's saying, I'm not going to sympathize with you. I'm going to call you to live a good life and let your good works be seen by people. That you're known by your good works. 
as we step into our community and we live by the grace of God and we extend the grace of God. Amen? Man, so good. Father, I thank you for Peter that you would remind us of the necessity. Man, this is such a good section. So encouraged by it. You would, we would be known by our good works so they could glorify God in heaven. Forgive us. Afresh and anew, Lord. I just know that, you know, that there's, a, there's, a, there's a moment of repentance and then God, you want us to walk in repentance. Just daily laying our aside these things, just laying aside desiring, laying aside desiring, abstaining that we would learn. It'd be, it, would, it would propel us in maturity so much faster, so much quicker. And I pray as we, even this weekend, we're just, that you would birth new desires in your church to minister to one another, to minister to their neighbors, to step into people's lives, to not be afraid. I pray against fear right now. There's a lot of fear about what's going on in our culture, and I understand that, Lord, but there's also fear of talking to their neighbor, and there's also fear of reaching out to their coworker, and there's also fear of ministering to the person at the supermarket or whatever, wherever the people are, Lord. I, re- I pray you remove that fear and replace it with a boldness and a courage, a heart to not do evangelism, but to be evangelism. Loving people, sharing with people, letting our work speak, letting our mouths speak. So God, for the pressures and things that we're under right now, may you remind us in a new, fresh way of your faithfulness in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together, church. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.